Well, if you're able to uh, take out a copy of God's Word while you remain standing, uh, turn with me first to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read a few verses out of chapter 3, one verse out of chapter 11. And then our main text will be uh, Psalm 83. A few verses for background from Genesis. Familiar verses, I'm sure. First, from verse 1, beloved saints, this is God's word. Please give your attention uh, to the reading of it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then skip down with me to verse 7, if you will. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now down to verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And if one more verse in Genesis real quick, if you can just skip a few pages to chapter 11. We're just going to read verse 4. It's from the Tower of Babel. This is what they said as they prepared to build that tower. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Uh, And now our main passage this morning, uh, Psalm 83, if you can turn there, Psalm 83, we'll read the entire psalm. A song, a psalm of Asaph, O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moabites and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek and Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb and all the princes like Zeba and Zalumna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flames set the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are most high 
over all the earth. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray that he would be pleased to minister to us uh, through it this morning. As the heavens are higher than the earth, O God, so are your ways higher than ours. And your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We're here because we want to know you. We want to know your truth. We want to know your ways. We ask that you would teach them to us, that you would guide us in them. Teach us to know your ways and to seek after them with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. Do this even now as we draw near to you. In your word we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 83 is a psalm of judgment, of cursing. It's a psalm that, if we were to sing it, should be sung in the minor key. uh, It's heavy and it's troubling. I, I looked around a little bit this week to see... Uh, how many sermons are, are out there, like on sermon audio and stuff like that? Uh, not a lot. It doesn't get preached that often. That's, that's not really surprising. Um, we struggle with judgment, uh, especially in our age, in our culture. Uh, we want to believe that we can just positive think all our differences away. Uh, we think that peace is ours for the taking if we would, you know, just give it a chance. We think that peace is easy and that those who break it simply don't want it. That they, they somehow love violence, that they love war. Uh, they must, or we would just simply all live in peace. So today, the chief arguments of atheists like Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and others is that they reject God because of the judgments he conducts throughout the Bible. Things like, you know, the conquest of Canaan or or the plagues, especially like those in Egypt, things like that, or um, Sodom and Gomorrah, all these different battles, these conquests, uh, these and and on and on. And and they want to say, why can't God just get along? Why did he have to judge people just for being different than him? Why is he so threatened by people who think differently than he does? Now, most Christians can see through the inconsistencies of those arguments because, after all, what are they doing except rejecting God for thinking differently than they do, right? Or, uh, we're still, they're making moral arguments against God while all the time trying to undermine the idea of absolute morality. But, but, there tends to be something that still nags at us as Christians. Why? Why does it have to be this way? Was judgment really necessary? It can make us uncomfortable. And so we often read over passages like this one, rather quickly. Now, I know there are some people who like those passages, but they have their own issues that we won't get into today. But for most of us, these passages can make us a little uncomfortable. And so we we tend to shelve the idea of praying for judgment or things like that. We put it away. And yet, this is God's Word. And one of the beautiful, or frustrating, depends how you look at it, things about preaching through the Word of God in order is that it forces us to reckon with passages like these. And that's good. That's good for us. God 
includes this in his word. He includes judgment because judgment is an essential aspect of who he is. We cannot understand him if we don't understand judgment. And we can't understand salvation if we don't understand judgment. Judgment is essential to salvation, both in accomplishing salvation, uh, uh, but, but also in driving us to cry out for salvation. And so we need to understand it. We need to not skip these passages. We need to wrestle with them, albeit soberly. And so even as we do this morning, my, my single point that I'd like to drive home is this. Because God is just and loving, because he's both, because he's just and loving, he judges and forgives. And his love and his justice, they meet at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's really what I want to uh, talk about this morning in Psalm 83. Now, we can't understand the subject of judgment without identifying the real antagonism in this world. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to try to identify the antagonism in this world. From there, we can look at the inevitability of judgment. That judgment is bound to happen. It's going to have to happen because of who God is. And then finally, that if we don't understand the goals of judgment, we will never understand judgment itself. We need to understand its goals, what it's trying to do. And there's more than one. Uh, and so we're going to look at those at the end. So that's where we're headed. Um, I, I wonder if you noticed uh, that the way the enemies in our psalm are described, uh, the, the, it echoes how the serpent is described in Genesis 3. They are said to be crafty, these, these enemies of the psalmist in Psalm 83, verse 3. Just as the serpent was said to be crafty uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, the serpent wasn't just evil, he was that, but he was deceitful. He didn't make his true intentions known as he came into the garden. He was crafty. He was uh, manipulative. He sought to trick his prey. And when God confronted the serpent, he said that he would send a child into this world, born of a woman, to deal with the serpent. And he said the serpent would raise his head against that child, but that child would crush that serpent's head. But God wasn't done. He also said that the world would be defined by two groups of people. Those who follow the way of the serpent and those who turn and follow this child born of this woman. There will be two groups, two families, two seeds. And that was just the third chapter of Genesis. Quite a bit by the time you get, before you even get to the fourth chapter. And yet this, what God said in Genesis 3 has proved itself time and time and time again. When this psalm was written, there were enemies who, like the serpent, were raising their heads against God and against his people. They were seeking to take possession of God's beautiful pastures, just as the serpent had sought to take possession of God's beautiful garden in Eden. And, and so these enemies that are being described in Psalm 83 are, are really walking in the path of the serpent, if a serpent leaves a path or a trail, whatever a serpent leaves. These enemies are following that way. These are the ones that Genesis 3 calls the seed of the serpent. They hate God. 
Now, we go a little bit, a few chapters later to the Tower of Babel, and we find what I think is quite frankly one of the most startling images of man's rebellion against God. The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Because there, they were a little bit more honest than the serpent had been in Genesis 3. They actually say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I think that's one of the most sobering verses in the whole Bible. They boldly say, let us do something for our glory. Let us make a name for ourselves. They, they knew what they were doing. There was no lip service of, of, of honoring God. No, no, no even uh, 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 play acting at honoring him, the one who made them. They knew that they were in it for themselves. They were honest about it. And like the serpent before them, they wanted to storm God's house, not just a garden in Eden. They wanted to build a tower into heaven and take the heavenly pastures by force and claim his property, his land, as their own. But the scariest part of what they said is, come, let us, lest we be dispersed, It's at Babel that we see the power of rebellion to unite people. These these people who who on any other day would have been working independently, separately, or, or, or antagonistically, they've united together in their rebellion against God. They desire to conquer God and to take heaven by force. Uh, uh, and, and And that desire of theirs is powerful in its ability to make allies out of enemies. And that's the power that we see present in our psalm in 83. It's Psalm 83, isn't it? Verse 4, come, let us, just like at Babel. Let us, let us unite. Let us gather around this. And then verse 5 says they conspire. They plot together against God. And then it goes on and it lists all these nations who at other times had been enemies and had fought against Israel and previously had no unity. And but their hatred of Israel and of Israel's God has brought them together so that they might unify themselves in their assault on Israel. This is what they have in common. They hate Israel because in Israel they see the God of Israel. Now this psalm, of course, has a unique context. There's an event that occasions its writing, but really what it portrays has been around since the beginning in the Garden of Eden, and it's still around today. Deep within every person is a knowledge of who created them. Everyone knows to whom they owe allegiance and submission. But that's the struggle. We know what we struggle with. We know where the battle really is. It's not knowing who God is. It's in submitting. The real battle is in surrender. It's giving up our glory and seeking God's glory. And if we won't surrender... It's all out war. We can find all sorts of ways to make it sound harmless. We say things like, I'm just really not a spiritual person, but it's fine for some. We attempt to sound neutral. I I don't hate God. I don't love him either. But here's the deep reality. It's this. When loyalty is due, indifference is rebellion. Rebellion. 
We know that in the family. Uh, a child who is indifferent toward the parent is in rebellion. But can you imagine a, a parent saying, I don't love my child, I don't hate my child, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just, you know, whatever. That would be a scandal because allegiance, loyalty, and service is due to that child. And anything less is rebellion. And the same is true for all of us who are created by God. We owe God allegiance, and anything less is rebellion. If we don't understand that, or if we are unwilling to admit it, we will struggle to understand history and God's judgment. And part of that history is rehearsed in verses 9 through 12. The psalmist recalls two lessons from the past. The first is Deborah's victories over Sisera uh, and, and Jabin and, and Judges 4 through 6. And then the second uh, is the, the victories of Gideon over Oreb and Zeb and Zeba and Zalmana in Judges 7 through 8. These were flesh and blood enemies who thought that they could go to war with God and with his people. They sought to take the promised land by force, by brute strength. And they were all deeply mistaken about their abilities and their strength. Because God will fight for what is right. He will fight for his own glory. He will fight for his people. Anything less would be beneath him. A God who does not answer injustice, who does not answer rebellion, who doesn't answer conspiracy, would, be, would not be worthy of being called God. Have you ever noticed that those who question God's right to defend what he believes is right are the quickest to defend their own notion of what they believe is right? That they are the quickest to defend their own honor and their own glory They have no problem defending their sense of honor, their sense of injustice. They just have a problem when God does it. They'll never come out and admit that. After all, they are crafty. The psalmist gets that. He he feels the consequences of their rebellion. He's enduring their hostility. But what he doesn't see is God doing anything about it. And yet he knows his history. He knows that God is not indifferent to rebellion. He knows that God is not weak. History is full of examples of God taking a stand for what's right, of bringing judgment when it's due. And so the psalmist invokes those images and he pleads for God to come and do again what he has done in the past. But he doesn't just appeal to lessons from the past. He doesn't just appeal to to Gideon and Deborah and their battles and their victories. He also appeals to lessons from nature. In verses 13 through 15, he looks at the fierce winds that drive chaff away. He looks at the great fires that reduce forests to to ashes. He, He considers hurricanes that terrify and destroy. And he knows that all of these come from the hand of God. They are reminders of his great power. They are sobering correctives when we start to think ourselves more powerful than we really are. When his life is going fine and easy, it's it's easy for him to think that he's invincible. But right now, 
he knows otherwise. And, and, and he looks at those, those fires and he says, this is what reminds other people that they're weak. Isn't that how it is for all of us? We think we're invincible when things are fine. But when a fire rages or hurricanes blow, it's then that we remember that there are powers that we can never hope to match. See, there's no argument crafty enough to silence a hurricane. You can't trick a hurricane into being quiet. You can accuse it of all sorts of evil. You can try to put it to shame. You can plead for calm seas. But when that hurricane blows, it will not be stopped. And the same is true for forest fires. No grand conspiracy can overcome a a hurricane or a fire. These natural disasters and others like them are, are meant to wake us up to these realities. They're meant to teach us about God's power and his wrath, Romans 1 says. They're meant as warnings. They're saying, don't take times of quiet for granted. They can change on a dime. Are you prepared? And so the psalmist says, they have not listened to your warnings. The time has come. Let your judgment come. And that's a hard prayer. At least it should be. But there is a time for it to come. But the psalm doesn't end there. The last three verses turn to two possible outcomes from that coming judgment. They tell us why God would be willing to come in wrath. So let's start with the final two verses and work our way back. So verses 17 and 18 first. He says, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Because God is God, he has an obligation to defend his own glory. To not do so would be to assault his honor. It would be sin. If God does not answer sin, he is complicit in it. And so God must judge sin in order to vindicate his honor. There's no way around it. And all the pious-sounding arguments in the world can't undo that reality. If God is good, if God is just, he must answer sin and rebellion. And what that means is, is that God wants us to learn to pray for judgment for his name's sake. We're good at seeking judgment when our honor is offended. We are quick to seek justice when our sense of right and wrong is attacked. We're quick to defend our rights and get angry with those who don't respect them and submit to them. But how often do we really cry out for God to defend his own honor? This psalm is included in the Bible. This psalm is meant to be preached because God wants us to learn to pray it. He wants us to seek that which is good over that which is comfortable. Perhaps one of the reasons we are sometimes taken in by arguments that question God's goodness is because we don't spend enough time meditating on passages like this. But that's not the only goal of God's wrath. Look at verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. You see, shame is a funny thing. 
In verse 17, it makes people run from God like it did with Adam and Eve at first when they sinned against God. Remember, they, they ran and hid themselves among the trees of the garden. They covered themselves in fig leaves. They were naked and they were ashamed and they hid themselves. Their rebellion, their arrogance was exposed and they ran from God. But sometimes shame will make us do the exact opposite like it eventually did for Adam and Eve. Sometimes shame when you see your sin for what it really is, when you recognize you have rebelled against the God who was perfectly righteous and then had the gall to find fault with him, when you're covered in that shame, sometimes you will run to God and you will throw yourself at his mercy. And that is what the psalmist prays for first. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name. Before he seeks their destruction, he first asks God if he might show them mercy. And this is where reminders of God's wrath are meant to drive us. When we see his judgments on Sisera and Jabin, on Oreb and Zeb and others, when we see mighty fires and terrible hurricanes, these are meant to remind us of our need for grace. If God withheld those reminders, we might never acknowledge our need. In one sense, they are acts of judgment. In another, they are divine mercies because they warn us before it's too late. You see, God's justice and his mercy are not incompatible. They are inextricably bound together. They have to be. We've already admitted that God cannot leave sin unaddressed and not be complicit. And that means if he's going to show kindness to sinners, he's going to have to deal with their sin. Justice must be answered. The cross of Jesus Christ is where the justice of God and his mercy meet. Because there, Jesus endured the antagonism that this psalm talks about. His antagonizers were crafty. They lied. They were manipulative. They, they conspired and they united around their hatred against him. They sought their own glory and not his. And now, here stood God become man. And all their anger and all their hatred and all their rebellion were unleashed on him. And yet that's not the worst of what he endured. The worst of what he endured was when he suffered the wrath of his very own father. Because he was treated like Sisera. He was treated like Jabin and like Oreb and Zeb and Zalmunna. He was sifted like chaff and he walked through the fires of judgment and he faced the awful hurricane of wrath. And he did all of this so that those who knew their shame and wanted to run to him might be able to find mercy and grace and forgiveness. Because rebellion has to be answered. And so Jesus answered it himself so that he would neither be complicit, that he would not be unjust, and that yet he would be able to be merciful as well to those who run to him for grace. And so the great question the great choice is where does your shame drive you? Because you go, we all have it. Shame is a universal reality. 
when we behold God, when we see his character, when we see his goodness and his power, whether it's, it comes from seeing those things in the Bible or through conversations with friends or simply by looking at nature and its beauty and its power all around, none of us, if we are honest with ourselves, can deny that we have shame. That is, in the face of true justice, perfect righteousness, but we are naked and we are exposed and we have no defense. So where does your shame drive you? For some, they run away from God. They only seek their own glory, their own way. They always see God as the great enemy, the great threat, and they will not bend their knee. They will not bow their hearts. They will make all sorts of arguments to try and make it sound like it's God who should be ashamed, not them. But it's a fool's errand. It's like trying to blow out a forest fire. It's like trying to stand against a hurricane. And like chaff, they will be blown away. But for others, their shame will drive them to seek the God of righteousness. They will not take a stand. They will bow their knee. They will not accuse God of all sorts of evil. They will simply say, Lord, I am a sinner. I have no right to ask. I have no right to be here. But here I am asking you, please, please have mercy on me. And it's those who do this that will hear those most precious of words. My child, I have paid your debt. I have endured my own wrath for your sake. Your sins are forgiven. I remember them no more. Your shame is covered in my love. And that's not simply a one-time thing because your sin will return. And with it, your shame. And when it does, don't run from God. Continue to run to Him because He assures you in His Word that His mercies are new every morning and His faithfulness is great. These two pictures, I'm sorry, these two choices are pictured for us this morning in baptism. Baptism is a picture of death, it's a picture of wrath. Uh, the flood of Noah was called a baptism, the, and the cross of Jesus was called a baptism. It's a picture of what we all deserve, a reminder of wrath to come. And Jesus' willingness to endure it for us. And it poses a question. Will you be like the thief on the cross who used his last breaths to, insult, to, to hurl insults at the God of righteousness? Or will you be like the one who faced with his sin simply said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Baptism comes with a promise. Those who rebel will not stand when judgment comes. But those who bow in faith shall not be moved. And so as we witnessed the, the baptism of James Montes this morning, did I get his name right? It's James, right? Okay, good. This is God's promise to James, and it's God's promise to us. And so I'd like to ask the Montes to come forward that we might receive uh, a James this morning.
and the elders, of course. Uh, baptism is a sacrament instituted by our Lord. Uh, it's a sign. It pictures something. We talked about that. It pictures death and judgment and salvation that comes through death and judgment. But it's uh, also a seal, a pledge of God that he will not change his mind. It's, it's like signing the contract. He can't go back. It's to assure us that if we would bow our knee in faith to Jesus Christ, we will not be judged. That's a great message for all of us to hear and a great message for James to hear at the beginning of his life. Uh, and by it, uh, we receive James into the church where he'll be raised with this truth. Uh, it's not the end of the journey. This is the beginning. This, this sets our, our compass on what we need uh, to teach our children every day of their lives and pray that they would come to embrace as their own faith. And so really, uh, this is as much for, for the family as it is for James because it's setting your course as parents, uh, Charlie and Sarah. So I have some questions. They're familiar ones. Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to condemnation, that they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace and as children of the covenant are to be baptized? And do you promise to teach diligently to James the principles of our holy Christian faith revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and summarized in the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church? And do you promise to pray regularly with and for James and to set an example of piety and godliness before him? And do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring James up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging him to appropriate for himself the blessings and fulfill the obligations of the covenant? Our gracious God, we thank you for this child, this beautiful, beautiful gift. And we thank you for the reminder this morning that salvation comes at a price and that were we to ignore the subject of judgment, we would not understand the price you paid and we might not understand our need for your grace and salvation. And so, Father, we ask that you would take these truths and you would write them on James's heart and mind that he would never remember a day that he did not know and love you, that he would never remember a day where he sought his own glory and not yours, and that he would follow you all the days of his life. And when his sin returns, and with it shame, that he would run not from you, but to you, and cry out once again, Father, forgive me. And he would be reminded of your faithfulness and your mercies that are new every morning. We praise you, we rejoice, and we thank you. Amen. As we close, um, we have one more picture 
for us of what justice, love, I'm sorry, justice and love and wrath and forgiveness uh, look like when they meet. The Lord's Supper is God's picture to us of Jesus' death on the cross. The bread and the wine are not just pictures of his flesh and blood, but his flesh and blood and death. They are constant reminders to us of the wrath he endured in our place. And so they are pictures of his love. It is at the cross where his judgment and his grace met. And so the bread and the wine are God's reminders to us that because God is just and loving, he must judge and forgive, and that his love and his justice meet most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to receive uh, the bread and the wine uh, together. But before we do, let us um, be reminded of a couple things. Uh, this meal is not for everyone. It is for only those who have bowed their knees in faith to Jesus Christ and are living uh, in, in an earnest desire to follow and obey him. Uh, this is not for those who are uh, walking away or, or living uh, without accountability and oversight. And, uh, and so part of what the Lord requires is that you're a, a living in submission to a local Bible-believing church as a communicant member. And so it's our privilege to invite all those who are baptized, communicant members in good standing of a Bible-believing church, uh, Protestant church, to come and, and to receive with us. Um, if that's not yet true, or not currently true, the Lord's instruction is to wait until that's been remedied. Uh, it's also my duty to remind you that we don't come uh, with rebellion in our hearts. And uh, The Lord says, repent and come or don't come. Now, that's not meant to say you have to be perfect. Oh, goodness. Could you imagine? This meal is, is not for those who are righteous. This meal is for sinners. It is for weak, hurting sinners who need grace. And so what God requires of us is not perfection, but humility as we come. No sense of entitlement, but gratitude. And so as we come, uh, let, us, let us give thanks before we do. Let us pray. Almighty Lord, you who are just and righteous, you before whom every knee must bow and tongue confess that you are Lord, we acknowledge that a day is coming when all men will stand before you. We confess that we have no righteousness of our own on which to stand. And so we thank you for this meal that reminds us that the great division in this world is not between the righteous and the, and the unrighteous, but between the repentant and the unrepentant. We thank you for the reminder that our worthiness is uh, not in our own sense of worth, but in belonging to Jesus. And so we ask that you would consecrate this meal, that it might be a sober reminder to us of our need for Jesus, and a great comfort to us that those who belong to him do not come into judgment but have passed from death unto life. Amen. Well, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you who are simultaneously merciful and just, righteous and forgiving, we stand in awe of you. We marvel that you would answer your own wrath for our sakes, that you would stand in the place of judgment so that we don't have to. Help us to desire your glory, your honor above our own, let that be what divides us, not our own honor or our own glory. Forgive us when we fail, and each time the shame returns, help us to run to you and not from you. Amen.